It's February 7th, 2022, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, Washington State Attorney General investigation shuts down Amazon price fixing program. UPS 2021 Q4 earnings highlights their focus on revenue quality. Glossier CEO learned a hard lesson in technology decision-making as it lays off 80 employees. Recent declines at Bed Bath & Beyond make you wonder if it can make it. And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news. Washington State Attorney General investigation shuts down Amazon price fixing program. Amazon will end its Sold by Amazon program following antitrust enforcement action by Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson's office announced on Wednesday. The SBA program amounted to unlawful price fixing according to a press release from Ferguson's office. Here are a few points about the program. It ran between 2018 and 2020. Amazon must pay about $2.25 million in settlements related to this program. Wait, that's it? Doesn't this seem like so much pocket change? Ostensibly, according to Amazon, this allows Amazon to set sellers' prices properly on the platform, which you know is kind of a conflict of interest, right? Amazon is also competing with you. Let this be a lesson to sellers. If you want another retailer to set your prices for you, at least get cash up front for it. That's what first-party sales is all about. In third-party selling, that risk is all yours anyway, and you should never want anyone else setting prices for you that you can't control. Note that I'm not talking about automated repricers here. Those act like an extension of your own staff. Speaking of staff, I know many sellers who, instead of using their own staff or a third-party agency to manage their advertising, outsource their entire advertising budgets and strategy to Amazon. That's not good. I mean, you are literally handing over the keys to one of your largest channels to a company that does not have your best interests at heart? What could possibly go wrong? Sellers looking to grow long-term with a platform need to spend time and effort to learn how to do things on their own, rather than assume a third party, namely Amazon, will come up with a program to solve their problems for them. Retailing is tough, right? The fact that there wasn't a huge uproar from consumers and sellers from the beginning on this program continues to demonstrate just how much trust Amazon still has in the market. This is a small example of a much larger problem of doing business on Amazon, you know, that generally most of the world has become numb to because of how large and influential the company is. In what other situations would you put the majority of your business and dollars into run by someone who's actively competing with you? It's nonsense, right? Sometimes you have to step back from closely following the space, the investments, and growth to realize what's really happening. Our second story. UPS Q4 2021 earnings highlights the focus on revenue quality. UPS just reported earnings for Q4 2021, and I thought I would give you a few call-outs from the call. First, The company's overall profit grew 37% year-over-year, an extremely impressive achievement. Overall, UPS predicts 4.5% growth from the overall economy this year, which is positive except when you realize that we are in an area of increased inflation. UPS expects that inflation to be higher in the first half of 2022 than in the second half. But of course, none of us really knows anything. Sellers and shippers should translate this as higher labor and materials costs. Second, there was an interesting quote from CEO Carol Tomei in the Q&A period when commenting on December 2021 retail shopping. 
Where are all the customers? She noted that they were all home due to Omicron and that volume had surged earlier in Q4 this year than in previous years. As far as the company's focus areas, UPS is continuing to hone in on three major segments, SMB, healthcare, and B2B. SMB is now up to 26% of overall volume. This highlights a key issue for UPS at the corporate level. The company is not trying to be the biggest shipper. Instead, it is focused on high-quality, profitable, and growing segments of revenue. This reduces yearly capital expenditures and improves UPS's return on invested capital, which incidentally the CEO noted was up 910 basis points in the quarter. Third, of course everyone wants to know about Amazon, which is the largest UPS customer, likely by a wide margin. UPS's Amazon revenue as a percentage of their total is now at 11.7% compared to 11.6% in 2019 after surging in 2020. When asked about future Amazon trends, Tomei responded, UPS's Amazon 2021 revenue grew. But she then quickly highlighted that the companies mutually agree on where each company is best suited to grow volume between them. That means network planning. She highlighted UPS's focus on healthcare, B2B, and SMB, which means to me that the company's revenue is diversifying long-term away from Amazon. My take is to expect increased revenue growth for UPS due to Amazon, but the share of revenue to tick down going forward. The only way for this to work is to find segments growing faster than Amazon, which ironically is easier than it used to be five years ago. Fourth, 60% of UPS's capital expenditures in 2022 are going into expansion of facilities and network, which I thought was a positive and interesting number, particularly since CapEx is growing to $5.5 billion in 2022 from $4.2 billion in 2021. Not to be lost in this is a transformation of how UPS does business as well with what the company calls its Smart Parcel Smart Facility Initiative, which plans on eliminating 20 million parcel barcode scans and replacing them with RFID tags across their entire network. You can just imagine how much this will save on labor, particularly at an induction and at all points throughout the parcel journey on the way to the consumer. Overall, UPS continues to invest in profitable growth segments and quality service, all good signs for the company. Our third story, Glossier's CEO learned a hard lesson in technology decision-making as it lays off 80 employees. Many technology organizations like to say, we are different and special. It's a source of pride for businesses because it means they aren't limited by the software and solutions the industry is producing. You know, that same industry that is investing billions in each little corner of e-commerce, but somehow a million-dollar tech budget will make up for that. Anyway, the cause for this belief is most certainly a combination of ignorance and hubris. To be clear, once a company reaches a certain size in revenue, it can become necessary to build your own software. There are no companies building quote-unquote off-the-shelf e-commerce platforms for Walmart-sized companies because there are no other companies Walmart-sized. But even if there were companies this big, they still couldn't afford to build the entire stack themselves. Almost certainly, this doesn't apply to your startup. It's with this lens that I analyzed Glossier, which recently laid off 80-plus members of its tech team because it built a lot of its platform in-house rather than using off-the-shelf components. It's something that certain chief technology officers take pride in, I realize. But here's where I come down on this. If you're just a retailer or a brand, chances are someone is building something close to what you need. If your business model is so complex that it demands custom software, think carefully and then evaluate even more carefully. Choosing the wrong vendor can set you back several years. This brings me to one rule I always try to follow. For your mainstream use case, 
You obviously want to see how your vendor is motivated to improve it continually. That means you need to get outside of your own needs for a moment and think like your vendor. What have they historically prioritized and where are they likely to prioritize in the future? One proxy for this is your vendor's top customer list. If you as a retailer don't look like the other customers on the platform now, chances are you won't look like them in the future either, which ironically might make you think you need to build your own software again, when really you just didn't find the right partners to be honest with you during the sales process. And our last story. Recent declines at Bed Bath & Beyond make me wonder, can the company make it? A recent story in the Wall Street Journal about Bed Bath & Beyond highlighted a few frustrating facts. Picture this scenario for the company. There's too much fixed overhead and the store experience seems cluttered and confusing. The number of shoppers in stores is declining. Employee retention is a challenge. Too many SKUs in stores are confusing buyers. Gross product margin is too low relative to the industry and there's little to no private label strategy. Everyone quote-unquote knows what to do next. Isn't it obvious what the company should just follow? What top retailers like Walmart, Target, and Kroger are doing? The big challenge with turnarounds is that it's always going to get worse, sometimes much worse, before it has any chance of getting better. Sometimes a new management team can apply lessons from their previous lives in Target, for example, and quote-unquote shock the patient so much that the remaining fans of the old chain just flee, wondering what happened to it. This certainly happened to retail legend Ron Johnson when he tried to take the lessons from Apple stores over to JCPenney. It was all reversed a few years later. Not that that worked either. Sometimes, consumers have just given up on a chain. The big challenge is, consumers that might appreciate the tactics being brought in are already gone. And so are you going to switch Target and Amazon customers from their current loyalty, even though they used to shop at Bed Bath & Beyond a while ago? That's not clear at all. What Bed Bath & Beyond needs is not just transformation. It's a plan to get modern shoppers back in stores. And for that, it needs a reason to exist, which I still to this date have not heard. That's where the whole plan falls down. You need a consumer value proposition that resonates. In an era when the biggest of the big box retailers like Walmart, Target, and Costco are crushing it with consumer satisfaction overall, there is much less space for quote-unquote medium box retailers that imply endless selection in their own names, but now, due to its private label and skew rationalization approach, doesn't have endless selection anymore. Will the company make it? All signs point to no. Still, the most likely outcome is that it sheds enough to become profitable and then the chain is later sold to new buyers, which in itself could be a win over the previous trajectory. Now, I was chatting with some industry veterans I trust who say to give CEO Mark Tritton more time, and I think that's fair. However, I couldn't disagree more. The biggest challenge is it's going to take more time to hit bottom before the company starts ascending again and still has so much work to do to get to even to level ground. And this is an environment where competition is executing at a high level, as I mentioned before, and gaining share every day. In my final analysis, I'm forced to ask a few simple questions. First, does the world need a category killer in this segment that is full price as opposed to places like home goods and big lots? Two, do I think Mark and his team will out-execute Target and Walmart? And three, do I think that the average consumer will soon understand when to visit Bed Bath & Beyond versus some of these other players? I cannot confidently answer yes to any of these questions, and that should worry those hoping for a comeback here. It's 
It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, BJ's Wholesale Club strengthens supply chain with acquisition of Burris Logistics. This is interesting because it's another in the trend of a retailer acquiring specialty logistics capabilities, this time in cold chain storage facilities. Second, crazily named startup, and I'm not kidding you, The.com, just launched a low-code website builder and snagged $4 million in venture funding. The unique feature is the ability to create customizable blocks that you can collaborate on and share with other website owners. But are they kidding me with this name, though? Third, as she sings and pour it up, all Rihanna sings is dollar signs. This time from her lingerie venture, Savage X Fenty, which just raised $125 million in Series C funding. Seriously, is there a retail fashion concept that Rihanna has been associated with that has not been wildly successful? Fourth, international marketplace Farfetch is planning a big launch into the beauty category later this year with an acquisition of Los Angeles-based retailer Violet Gray. It will be super interesting to watch the company's expansion into this new segment. And finally, Kim Kardashian's Skims doubles valuation to $3.2 billion with a new $240 million funding round. The Reality Stars underwear label raised another $240 million from Lone Pine Capital after sales surged 90% last year. The Kardashian sisters previously owned a boutique-type store simply named Dash in three locations including New York City, but they were shut down in 2018. It makes me wonder if Kim would ever consider opening up a physical location again for her new brand. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, your essential e-commerce digest. Our show is produced by Citizen Racecar. Alex Brower is the producer and also wrote our theme music. The executive producer is David Hoffman. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.